For those who will remain, I want to invite you to turn with me at this time in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 2 as we read verses 1 through 12. This episode contains the story of the visit of the, of the Magi, uh, or it would be pronounced Magi, but that doesn't sound right in English, so we say Magi. Um, we're going to sing We Three Kings, and that's a fun song to sing, but it's wrong. Uh, they weren't kings. Uh, if you read the history of how they became considered kings with names, it's, 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 it's a remarkable story of just fairy tale. Uh, it's, uh, but they're not kings. They, they are magi. And, uh, and there were most certainly more than three of them. They would have been a caravan. Uh, but the song is what it is, and it's a great fun song to sing. Just know that the, some of those little pesky details are, aren't in accord with, with what the Word of God tells us. So uh, let's go ahead. Uh, let's read, and let's read what the Bible does say about them and what the Bible does say for us. So Matthew, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this insight 
of how various elements of society were responding to the arrival of your son. Grant that we would be found to be among those who seek him in truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are in the third week of Advent, and we are in the midst of our Christmas time celebrations as, as families, as individuals, as a church. Um, and it just seems weird to me how this year seems to be a concentrated year in terms of the number of people who have fallen ill, uh, hospital visits. Uh, both here and at home, uh, our family up in the Midwest. Uh, There's a lot of strain. There's a lot going on that would pull our attentions from the fact that this is the season we celebrate the birth of Christ. And it's not that the celebration of the season is such a big deal. It's not obligatory at all. But we go around saying Jesus is the reason for the season, And all too often, it seems that we're surprisingly unimpressed about the reason for the season. All too often, it seems like uh, those of us who know the most about Jesus seem to be the the least excited about him. Um, and, and And that's a sad thing. Uh, this passage here is all about responding to the person of Jesus. Matthew is very early in his gospel. He, he skips the birth itself. He, he gives details of, about his coming. But now he fast forwards. And we don't know precisely how much he'd fast forward. Up to two years. Um, we know that Herod in, a, in the next section is going to respond in a fit of rage, and he goes and he slaughters all the boys up to two years of age. That doesn't mean Jesus was two. If Herod knew that he was two, he would only have needed to kill two-year-olds. Understand that following stars and traveling across the the Asian continent is a time-consuming process. It's not precise. So he had a approximately two-year window that he was working with. And that's why he kills all the boys who were two years and under, because he didn't know where in that Jesus was. But time had obviously passed. And enough time had passed that these wise men are able to travel from the east, and we'll get to them in a few moments. But now Matthew wants to set up a, a scene for us where... Three groups of people are going to be presented with the knowledge that the king of the Jews has come, and how do they respond? The first person we see respond is Herod. We're introduced to Herod. And I don't want to bore you uh, by going into one of my interests, which is the, the intertestamental history but the geo-sociopolitical turmoil of that era are profound, and it really sheds light. It will help you understand what is meant in Galatians 4 when Paul says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So 
after Alexander the Great came through and he charged chasing the Persian king all the way to modern-day Afghanistan. I've been in an old fort of Alexander's in western Afghanistan. Then he goes down into India. And then he decides, because his men are mutinying, that it's time to go home. After all this conquest, it's time to go home. Well, he dies, and his mighty empire gets divided into four regions. Okay? One of these regions is the area that he had just conquered all the way over to, to uh, Afghanistan. That ruler, we, we don't even usually think about him anymore. We only focus on Ptolemy and Seleucus. But that ruler, uh, that kingdom ended up falling to a, an uprising of, of, of basically a resurgent sort of Persian empire. And they became known in history as the Parthians. The Parthian Empire. And they were basically Rome's most formidable opponent to the east. They touched the eastern boundary of Rome's empire and they went all the way to China. And they were around the Silk Road. If you look that up, Rome traded with China. Okay? All this history stuff. Uh, the culture of the Parthians was steeped in a combination of, of uh, Babylonian and Persian religious milieu. They affirmed a lot of Zoroastrianism. There was a heavy emphasis on astrology. And these wise men you see, they're the same, that's the same group of people found in Daniel chapter 2 when when Nebuchadnezzar, he brings all the, it says, magicians and stuff, though, though, that's the same Greek word, they were the magi. So when you hear magi, you got to understand royal court advisors who are highly skilled in, in the arts of astrology, and they're, they're pagans, but they're learned in their craft. And some of these guys, as you see from Daniel chapter 2, were vicious and cruel. Others of them were more benevolent minding. But the bottom line is, is they read the stars. We're going to get back to that in a second. In another corner of the world, after the Maccabean revolt, which freed the Jews in Judea from the rule of the Syrians, the, the Seleucids, there arose a Jewish dynasty, the Hashmoneans. And this dynasty lasted a little while, a couple hundred years, and they conquered what was, then, what was formerly known as Edom. Edom to the south and east of Israel. And this dynasty endured into the coming of Rome. Herod the Great is one of the descendants of that conquered Edomite group. John Hyrcanus, a Jewish king, told all the, con the conquered Edomites, you will follow the law, the law of Moses, or that was Jewish conversion. Uh, so for 200 years, the conquered Edomites, known to history as Idumeans, uh, they 
conformed to the Jewish law, but they were not Jewish. Now, the story of Herod the Great is a story of intrigue, political upheaval. His dad basically uh, was a friend of Julius Caesar. And through a bunch of buddies, patent, back patent, and all that stuff, ultimately, Herod the Great got rewarded for his and his father's loyalty and allegiance. The Roman Senate deposed the last ruler of the Jewish dynasty, the, the Hashmonean dynasty, and by rule of the Roman Senate declared that this Idumean, this conquered Edomite guy, was now, in Roman law, king of the Jews. Rule of the Senate. The Senate voted that, that Herod would be king of the Jews. He was a cruel man. History, uh, there's paintings of his, of, uh, about him. Uh, he murdered multiple wives, multiple sons. He, he was very, very, very paranoid. Probably similar to if you've studied about Joseph Stalin. He always thought someone was out to get him. And so he was just brutal in, in, in how he would respond to any perceived threat, whether it was real or imagined. So, so vicious was he that he famously, on as he was dying... He wanted two things to happen at his death. He had just arrested a bunch of Jewish elders. He wanted these Jewish elders to be executed, and he wanted his youngest son to be executed so that the people would be mourning at his death. That's Herod. Uh, his two most famous building projects that he engaged in, though, is he built the temple that Jesus was going to later on pronounced the coming destruction of, and he built, he built a number of things, but he built the fortress at Masada, where the Jews committed mass suicide uh, to escape Roman capture and murder. A brutal, brutal man, a very politically shrewd man. He, if you read the history, when the Rome was having its civil war after the assassination of Caesar, man, he played both sides for a while. He was on Mark Anthony's side for a little bit, but then when he saw that that was turning, he was on Octavian's side, and Octavian ultimately won and became Caesar Augustus. A shrewd, shrewd man. So what he does in this passage is actually, don't just gloss over it, this is real, shrewd. He receives word that these wise men have come. And what's funny is, imagine the scene. The, the wise men, these, mad guy, these magi, they roll into Jerusalem, it says. And it would not have been three men crossing a thousand-mile desert. It would have been in a whole entourage. Their arrival is enough that it causes a hubbub in the city. And word reaches Herod that some dudes, some foreign dudes have come in and they're saying, Yo, where's the king of the Jews? Now, Herod has been declared king of the Jews by Roman Senate. And he's real paranoid. No wonder Jerusalem and all of its leadership are troubled. Because when the king's not happy, heads are going to roll and we never know who it's going to be. But he calls for them. I'm sorry, he doesn't call for them first. He calls for, it says, the scribes and the chief priests. 
This is a shrewd move. Herod, because he was not Jewish, he's not one of the Jews. In fact, in later, later on and in other Gospels, you'll hear about the Herodians. What is that? Well, these are people who are basically loyal to this usurping, imposed on them leadership that's not even Jewish. It, it, they're, like the, they're like the French people who helped the Nazis after the Nazis took over. Or the Dutch people who helped after the... They're hated by their countrymen because they're traitors. They're colluding with the enemy. Well, anyway, when he calls the scribes, he's calling essentially the Pharisees because the scribes were composed primarily of the theological conservatives, the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they controlled the high priesthood. They controlled the temple. This was not by a popular election. This was not done by theological. This was Roman imposition. The, the people who were most amenable to Rome got to have the most power. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they hate each other. Now, how do you want to know if you're a paranoid person and you're hearing word that the, the king of the Jews has been born and I think I'm the king of the Jews, who do you trust when you know that you're hated by all of them? Well, you find two groups of people who hate each other. And you ask them. And if these two people who are antagonistic towards each other agree, then you have an answer. And so he asks them. And they don't skip a beat. That's what's amazing to me. It doesn't say that they retreated into their, into their library. They didn't retreat into their study. They didn't have a, a called meeting to deliberate. They just knew. They knew it was on the top of their head. And, and you, you see in verse 5, their certainty. They told him, in Bethlehem, for so it is written. They, they, they just knew. And then they cite Micah 5. So, after getting the news that the, that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, was to be born in Bethlehem, then he summons the wise men, because like all tyrants, he knows that what he needs to do, he needs to do it on the down low. Understand that every single tyrannical government does what it does as surgically as possible because all governments fear an uprising. They will do one of two things. They will make it seem like what they're doing is enforcing the law so that way it's the person who's being uh, persecuted is, is in the wrong, that they're criminals and they're being, so they're being oppressed that, for that reason. Or if they can't do that, they'll just quietly disappear them or whatever. And this is what happens here because the star apparently had not stayed in the sky. The star was in the sky long enough to get the wise men to the general area. Bethlehem is about five miles outside of the city. It appears to reappear. And that's why they, it says, behold, look, it's there. And they're thrilled. The king has the awareness of the location because the prophets have said so, Bethlehem. They didn't know Bethlehem at this point. But the king didn't know when the baby had come. And it keeps saying he ascertained, he ascertained. In other words, he didn't get a straight answer from them, 
But he was putting two and two together through their conversation. So he was able to piece together a basic time frame of when this had happened. And he doesn't want to have to have the political stink, the social unrest of a big action. He wants a surgical strike. So you go. Go find, I'm giving you the, the, go do your thing and then come back and tell me so that I too may go worship him. But of course, he does not want to worship him, does he? No. And we see his response, what he does, in a bit. So then the wise men go, and they appear, and it says in verse 10, And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Do you hear how superlative the language is at their rejoicing? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is a a search that is almost done. And the star appears to have gone, but now it's here again. And it's guiding us to our destination. We are about to see the one for whom we have come and traveled all these miles. And they see. And they come into the house and note the emphasis. It does not say that they saw the child with Mary and worshipped. It says they worshipped him. That, that point has to be because there's a great many who would tell you that Mary is to be worshipped. Okay? The wise men worship the son. And they give him treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And here they show a, a picture of what constitutes true worship, is that there's no such thing as real worship that doesn't involve the sacrifice, the offering of something. That's a principle that's found throughout Scripture. Even David, far be it from me to try to worship with something that cost me nothing. The, the act of worshiping is that the attestation that someone or something, because many, many are idolaters, but, but someone is of greater significance and value to me than is this thing that I am giving up. A reason. God does not need our money. God can just do stuff. But a reason why God calls his people to offer in the old covenant a first fruit of, of, of all this stuff and, and why God wants offerings, it's not that he has to use them, he chooses to, but it's our demonstration that, Lord, in this material world where money matters, I am testifying that you matter more to me, you are more precious to me than this. That's what the sacrifice entails. But they show, they come to Jesus and they show what worship looks like. Now I will say this, I don't want to read too much into them worshiping. Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean that they, they, they didn't understand, they were astrologers and the, that part of the world had a profound centuries long tradition of worshiping important people. I mean, Alexander the Great loved it. When he, when he went there and conquered them, uh, and, and they saw that those people were, were worshiping him, he loved it, and he started wanting his own countrymen to do that. 
And they were like, what are you talking about, man? That's nuts. But people over there bowed down and worshipped important people. So don't read too much into them worshipping. It's what they did. But they did do it to Jesus. And they did not do it to Herod. So understand that these people realize that through their arcane arts, which we're going to talk about in just a second, they understood that Herod was a nobody, though he may have been somebody in the political scene. The real important person here is this one who has just been born. And he's of enough significance to them that they travel a thousand miles and offer up costly, costly gifts. But the elephant in the room is that they are astrologers. And the Old Testament not only condemns astrology, it mocks it. Is this passage here saying that astrology is legit? That you can determine your future by means of astrology? No, it's not saying that at all. In fact, like I said, this star appears to have disappeared for a while to reappear. No, what I do think you should see, though, is that you have a God who is willing to speak the language of the heathen. In this case, stars mattered to them. And they understood their significance. So God in his divine condescension spoke their language to grab their attention to bring him to Jesus. Just like God might choose, if there's a gambling addict, he might drop a, he might have a bunch of change at a casino just on the floor. He's not, cond he's not condoning their behavior. He's grabbing their attention. He's speaking their language by capturing their attention. And this, of course, is in fulfillment of the fact that numerous Old Testament prophets had predicted the nation's coming to the Messiah, they, the nations bringing gifts to the Messiah. And so they come. And so immediately then, we're invited to make a, 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 a distinction here. Not a distinction. We're decided to take, we are called to take notice of the fact that you have three groups of people from various backgrounds with various amounts of prior knowledge coming to a decision of how to receive and respond to Christ. You have at first Herod, the usurping king, in power by virtue of Roman strength. And he immediately perceives the threat that Jesus is. Jesus, if he's the king of the Jews, that means that I'm not. If Jesus is king, then I am not. And so his response is one of hostility. There are a great many for whom the claims of Christ's lordship are a threat to their existential sense of self. If Jesus is lord, then I am not. If Jesus is true, 
then that means that I have to obey him. But that would mean giving up my claims to autonomy, self-authority, to my sense of self-control. Herod is a prototype of that type of self-centered response that sees Jesus as a threat. The religious leaders are by far the most sad episode of this whole thing. I find it astonishing, and I hope you do too, that there's a caravan of foreigners rolled into Dodge saying, yo, where's the Messiah at? And it's caused a hubbub. Oh, this doesn't happen ordinarily. And in that time period, there was a lot of messianic expectation and hope because they were living under a double occupation. Herod and his people, Rome. They wanted to be free, right? But then, as soon as they hear, hey, there's these people here saying, where's the Messiah at? Where's the king of the Jews? And then the king says, hey, where's the king of the Jews to be born? They know right away. And what do they do? Nothing. Not a thing. Jerusalem was five miles from Bethlehem. Granted, it's five miles of hilly terrain. I get it, I get it. Five miles. And not a one of them is recorded as going to check it out. And that right there is where I, as a religious person, feel the gut check. These people knew the right answer off the top of their head of where the Messiah would be born. They get a report that, that was of such interest that it led people from a thousand miles away to come. That's, that's kind of weird. I mean, that's, that's out of the ordinary. I, and they are so unmoved that they do absolutely nothing. The Magi, of course, they came because they, in their pagan way, realized that this star means something. God condescended to operate within their perception, and God caused some sort of phenomenon that either was a star or resembled a star, whatever. It led them to say, hey, we got to take this trip, and they braved the weather, the miles, the, the, the bandits for a thousand miles, likely the better part of a year. And they come, and they're shrewd enough to not just tell Herod right away. They are, after all, wise men. They're sensitive to divine leadings. They're warned by God in a dream, and they immediately comply. They present gifts, and they pay homage, and they leave quietly. So my question is, the Christ has come. How do we respond? 
Now, he's not here like, like he was then in, in a physical location where we need to get up and move and, or go, go find him like that. No, when he comes again, every eye will see him. But now he has come. And his word and his will and his work, it's all, it's all here. And then when we read scripture, the Holy Spirit makes our hearts and our mind and our eyes alive and we, and we want to respond. Do we respond? Do we sit here unimpressed, same old story, same old news? Like the Pharisees, for hundreds of years they had been knowing the prophecies. Or do we respond in faith and obedience? Do we actually respond with wonder? That in our world of troubles, in our world of rebellion, my own life of rebellion, that the Son of God would come and that he would take my place, that he would keep the law perfectly for me, but then not just do things for me as one of his people, he actually has expectations for me. He is, after all, the king of the Jews. And according to Paul, we who are in Christ are true Jews. He is our king. Do, do I respond and, and pay homage to my king? Do I, do I sacrifice my, my life as a living offering, as Romans 12 tells us? Or do I just act like the religious leaders and stuff my head full of knowledge ready to articulate a response, but utterly unmoved by anything. My challenge to you is to be convicted by the earnestness of these magi, that they follow and they come and they offer sacrifices to the Lord letting him know that he is worth the time and the trouble that it took for them. Brothers and sisters, what does responding to Jesus look like to you? Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for sending the wise men as, a, as forerunners, so to speak, of the Gentiles that would stream into your kingdom. Grant that we would not be characterized by experiential indifference to you. Forbid that we should take solace in mere intellectual knowledge or maybe even in cultural practice. And Lord, I pray that if there be any for whom Jesus is perceived as a threat, that they would by your spirit have the eyes and ears of their heart opened and unstopped that they might repent of their sins and fall before the chief cornerstone. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased to find us willing receivers of Christ's coming. It's in his name we pray. Amen.